Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Allison Lattermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. This is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. Today we're talking about science fiction. We're stepping outside the laboratory and we're entering the world of science fiction, a world that I know you're very fond of, Robert. Uh, yeah, I've been a, a fan of sci-fi for, for quite some time. Um, I don't pretend to be an expert uh, on it. There is plenty of uh, classic sci-fi books that I have, have not read um, and will maybe get to one day. But, uh, but yeah, I have a lot of love for sci-fi and I know that you have been looking to, to get more into sci-fi. I have, yeah. I've done a little reading. I've read Brave New Worlds. I did uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, some That's stuff cool. like that. But I do. I am looking for some more sci-fi reading. Cool. Well, uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're really going to kick off talking about like why it matters. Like, what what is science fiction in relation to science, which is our core uh, topic here, and uh, you know what it means. And then uh, we're going to go through a few different titles that I'm particularly fond of that I might recommend to you or to anyone out there who's looking to to get into sci-fi. And these three titles are good. If it gives you any context, I went to the library, the public library the other night, and I was looking for these three books. I've done a little bit of reading on them, but I haven't fully read them yet. And I'm really looking forward to them. And anyway, these three books that Robert, that made Robert's list are all checked out. So I think that's a good sign. Yeah. And uh, I think they're all, uh, they're all Hugo award winners as well. Yes. Yes, they are. So yeah, we'll just kick this off with the Webster's definition for science fiction. Um, quote, fiction dealing principally with the impact of actual or imagined science on society or individuals or having a scientific factor as an essential orienting component. So, yeah, it's all about where where, where science uh, touches society and how that impacts our view of the future. One interesting thing I found about science fiction is that you would think that it would be all about the technology, right? It would focus mm-hmm. on the technology. But in a lot of science fiction, it seems that it always comes down to the individual. The individual still remains important, determining uh, the future of the world or the future of interplanetary society. So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think like even the even the techiest um, sci-fi, uh, you know, it tends to come down to, to human stories. Like how, what is, how would technology change? What we fundamentally are, and how, what do they, how do they illuminate what we fundamentally are? Uh, a lot of times, that means illuminating, of course, our, our strengths or our weaknesses, depending on whether you have more of a lighthearted uh, sci-fi romp or something just brutally dark. You know, an important distinction to make in all of this um, is hard sci-fi versus soft sci-fi. Okay. All right. Um, and uh, it comes down to questions of: Is this actual science? Is it? Uh, is extrapolate is it extrapolated from real um, you know studies uh, findings etc or uh, is the science just kind of magic um, it doesn't necessarily make the, the science fiction good or bad you have you know really good hard sci-fi and you also have some really boring hard sci-fi out there um, but yeah your, your your hard sci-fi is going to be more rooted in in the actual science of the thing uh, in, in realistic um, visions of the future based on uh, the current course of, sci- of science. For instance, uh, hard science fiction would be like Arthur C. Clarke, uh, especially his uh, his novel, A Fall of Moon Dust, uh, which deals with moon colonization. Or uh, Ben Bova has a number of books dealing with the colonization of Mars. Um, you know, these, these are all books that, that at heart are dealing with the actual science. Uh, if you get into soft uh, sci-fi, I, I mean, the classic example would be something like Star Wars. Really? Yeah, because, I mean... 
I, I, I mean, I'm sure there's some books that try and explain the science of, of Star Wars. But anyway, in fact, we have an article about uh, lightsabers. But by and large, Star Wars is not concerned with how the science of anything works. It's about this, about creating a, a you know, a big space opera, a big romantic, melodramatic, uh, melodramatic adventure, uh, with, you know, super powered individuals and super powerful factions and all this. Um, uh, and then also you have, uh, smaller works, say like, uh, The Time Traveler's Wife, which I haven't read, but, uh, but I understand it takes a sci-fi element and use it as a plot device uh, for a, a character-driven exploration, you know. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, The Time Traveler's Wife is not really a book concerned with, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the physics of time travel. And, um, yeah, and uh, along those lines, we also have uh, uh, very optimistic uh, sci-fi. You have very pessimistic sci-fi. And when it comes to the, these visions of the future, you also have your, your very utopian visions of the future and your dystopic visions of the future. Uh, and, you know, that kind of speaks for itself. Is so Star Trek. Star Trek is a classic example, yeah, of, of uh, a very, uh, if not utopian, then very optimistic vision of the future. You know, it's rooted, you know, it goes back to, you know, the excitement about the space race and the, this idea that technology was just going to get better and better and change the, the, uh, the way that we live. Um, you know, you'll, I mean, even though there, there's war and there's, uh, there's destruction and death in, in the, uh, and, and certainly conflict in the, uh, in the Star Trek universe, um, you still see like whole, like all of Earth is united as one people. Whole systems of, uh, you know, of, of aliens are united as one people, you know, and that's, you know, and they even have this, uh, like the whole, um, prime directive deal where they don't, right. they don't mess with, uh, with rising uh, civilizations that haven't achieved, uh, you know, space travel yet, you know, so they're, they're already writing, you know, writing into this future that we will have learned from our past that we're not going to say repeat uh, the exploitation and decimation of, uh, of the native American um, uh, people, you know, on a cosmic scale. Right. So they already have really cool stuff like green technology and there is an element of morality threading the entire series. Mm-hmm. So let's look at some of the more pessimistic stuff. What about Avatar? Where uh, well, would you put that? I would say that uh, Avatar is not just like super dark because you have some sci-fi that's just basically saying humans are horrible and in the far future we're just going to be even more horrible. Um, but uh, Avatar still paints a, a rather bleak vision of humanity's future. You know, it's like humans have destroyed their own planet, basically. I mean, it's they talk of, speak of it as a, a poisoned world, and they're headed off to another planet to exploit its resources and its native inhabitants, uh, you know, com- continuing the cycle that, uh, you know, we started in colonial days and before. Oh, so I see it. It's the uh, distinction of colonization versus no colonization. I guess, yeah. It's just kind of, you know, it, it kind of comes down to the whole, you know, idea you know the terror of history it's like are, are humans going to just keep making the same mistake over and over again and your more optimistic uh visions uh, involve us learning from our mistakes and the more pessimistic or in my opinion realistic ones involve us making the same mistakes over and over again so let's get into some of the classics let's talk about hg wells and jules verne yeah yeah these were these are two of the the big guys um you know you can you can go back and find you know Older works that are technically sci-fi, but these are the the real fathers of modern science fiction. Um, Wells, of course, is known for such works as the as the Time Machine, uh, Verne, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. So, um, you know, they're uh, they're writing, especially Verne is write, wrote a lot about the future, predicting what the future was going to be like, and and he was like a, a true tech, like tech geek, like he would probably have 
a podcast with with Jonathan Strickland today, <laughs> you know, if you were around. Um, or Jonathan would and him would be tweeting back and forth. Yeah, right. Um, because yeah, Vern was writing about you know air conditioning, automobiles, fax machine, uh, electricity, traveling to the moon, submarines, uh, you know, and all this. Um, Wells was no slouch either, right? He was writing about time travel, of mm-hmm. course. He was writing about lasers, invisibility, interplanetary war, um, even wireless communications and answering machines. And just to give you a perspective, H.G. Wells was alive from uh, 1866 to 1946. Yeah, and uh, one thing I ran across uh, when I was brushing up again uh, on him was that uh, the people pointed out that if Mary Shelley hadn't written Frankenstein, um, then Wells may have actually like hit all the... The, uh, the key, like, sci-fi plot elements, you know, and just, you know, nailed them ahead of time. Cause he, he was just, he was just on a frenzy towards the end of the 19th century. Just like, book a year, you know, and each one is, you know, a classic today. But it's also worth mentioning, again, that, yeah, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, in addition to being, you know, horror, is definitely a, a key early sci-fi work. Yeah, and the important thing with any of this, uh, any science fiction is that it's not what it tells you about the future, because obviously none of it's gonna be completely correct um but uh, but what it tells you about the time in which it was published you know what what were their thoughts in the victorian age um about the about their modern technology about what the future was gonna was gonna hold for everybody um right so wells and uh Vern were both concerned about humanity's path back then and where it might lead in the future yeah they were thinking that maybe it's going to be a stagnating world like that of the morlocks and the eloi yeah yeah one where um where basically the, the the class divisions and industrialization would lead to a uh, an age where um, you had you know these these dreamy little elf people living on the surface world doing nothing with their lives and, and their society while these monstrous uh, you know troll like creatures actually I think they were more spider like in the uh, in the book uh, that, but uh, it's hard to get the image from the film out of your head uh, but but while these monsters uh, you know toiled underground to keep the uh, the surface system alive. And, uh, and of course, uh, Vern, uh, wrote, uh, you know, several books dealing with the future of warfare. And, uh, you know, they're pretty, pretty bleak in that regard that, you know, we have all this amazing technology and we're going to continue to use it to destroy one another. So what were some of the outdated concepts that both Vern and Wells? Yeah, these are things where, you know, you read them today and, um, and I, and it just doesn't make, you know, it doesn't jive as, as well. Like, you know, say, well, that's, that's not the way it turned out at all. Um, sort of like if you, you know, you know, sort of like if you watch, you know, 2001, a space odyssey and you're like, whoa, hold on. Our space stations don't look like that. Um, but, but generally the older the sci-fi, the, the bigger the chance that the, the science is really wonky by today's standards. Um, so like Vern said, you have to give them credit for trying. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they were working with, with the best that they had. I mean, sci-fi written today, even like the, the most cutting edge sci-fi, uh, you know, is it going to hold up in, you know, a hundred years? Maybe, maybe not. This stuff holds up because I mean, both of these guys were, were great writers. And, uh, and had something important to say, you know, and that's why we keep going back to him. So like Vern's journey to the center of the earth, um, it has some outdated, uh, ideas about the earth's interior. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and he's trying to, to educate the reader about, uh, about, you know, what extinct creatures existed in which geologic age, you know, and not all that holds up today. Um, it's, that's okay. you know, but it's, it's, but it's fine because he was, he was writing for the modern, you know, his modern audience and it, Clues us into how they were thinking back in the, you know, the Victorian era. Um, likewise, uh, the time machine, there's this great sequence in the end where the time traveler, um, goes, just travels like ridiculously far. I mean, he's already ridiculously far 
my head because uh, what the time machine takes place in uh, eighty. Um, Eight hundred and two thousand seven hundred and one, you know. So, which is great because so many time travel movies, like they go to, like, ooh, the this is what the future is going to be like in nineteen ninety seven, and you know, <laughs> like, oh, we didn't have flying cars in ninety seven. So, you know, Wells had it right. He's like, like, all right, they when you finally get to the year eight hundred and eight hundred thousand, you know, then you can correct me. But uh, but no, he had this uh, this vision of the like the Earth. Uh, when the sun finally stop, you know, stops burning and the, the earth just stops in its tracks and, and uh, everything dies and it's, you know, very bleak and beautifully written. But of course, uh, it's, it's based on outdated models of, uh, celestial mechanics. Still works though. I highly recommend, uh, highly, highly recommend the, the, uh, the time machine. What about the movies? Um, you know, they're, they can be fun, but, uh, you know, I, it, it's, you know, each work of sci-fi is, is rooted in its day, you know? And sometimes when you have like an older work of sci-fi and it's produced in another time, you end up with sort of a mixture of those, those things. So it's kind of a, kind of diluted in my opinion. So today we're going to start off with three sci-fi books that I personally am going to read and we hope you will too if you haven't already. Um, and we picked these three books because they are award winners and stuff like that, but they're also held up as classics in the pantheon of science fiction. And I really like each of them, so I, I can speak to them, you know. The first one that made our list was Dune by Frank Herbert. I'm just going to read you the first line in case you've never read it. In the week before their departure to Arrakis, when all the final scurrying about had reached a nearly unbearable frenzy, an old crone came to visit the mother of the boy, Paul. Yeah. And so begins Dune. Herbert's 1965 novel, and it won the Hugo Award in 1966, and it went on to also win the very first Nebula Award. Dune has had a bunch of sequels and even a prequel written by Herbert's son, Brian. Oh, yeah, like a string of prequels. Like, the the Herbert kids are just going crazy with it. So Dune follows Paul Atreides, the son of a powerful family, um, kind of think a far future equivalent of the Montagues or the Capulets, and this powerful family is just gaining control of the desert planet Arrakis, and Arrakis is important because, of course, it's a source of melange. And this is a drug that's pretty helpful for interplanetary travel, psychic powers, and other stuff. Yeah, crucial, I would say. Like, it's basically, and it's kind of, it's kind of like the Middle East of this universe, you know, with, with its oil. This right, is the planet right. that has the, the, uh, the, the element that makes uh, the whole system work. You guys might remember us mentioning melange and Dune on our podcast about what drugs um, astronauts are on. Yeah. Didn't it come up on that? Mm-hmm. I it sure did. But uh, melange is is not one of the drugs that astronauts. It's are. not. Yeah, it's not actually. It is real, actually science but, uh, fictional. And so Herbert Dune is a hugely complex story, and it's one that has generated a serious fan base and some serious book sales. The Library Journal says Dune is to science fiction what The Lord of the Rings is to fantasy. So why are we talking about Dune today? Why did it make our short list of three? Well, um, well, first I should point out that this is Dune is very much a space opera. Um, it's it's you know, it's grand, it's epic, it's, you know, it's... I really like that term, space opera. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the first couple of times you hear it, you kind of think of people singing in space. Right, uh, a large but, woman with a hat with horns yeah. coming out. Yeah, I don't think there are any hats with horns in this. But, um, but yeah, then it kind of grows on you. Uh, th- not to say that there's there aren't some, some scientific ideas uh, thrown around in here. Um, for instance, uh, uh, Herbert was inspired by... Um, by some some ongoing efforts to reclaim some uh, some desert land in in the U.S. and so there's a there's a good bit of uh, ecological content in the in the books. It's very well thought out and you know and very scientific. And perhaps accidentally, 
um, you know, going back to the melange, there's the whole business where they, they take the, uh, the pilots of these, uh, va- these huge spaceships take it because, uh, space is so dangerous that, and especially traveling at really high speeds, it's so dangerous. You have to be able to see a little bit into the, into the future to, um, to successfully navigate, you know? Um, and interestingly enough, uh, there have been some reports that the, uh, that the Soviet Union actually looked into, uh, into the possibilities, um, of using psychics in their space program early on. I, I did a blog post about it. A, I remember that blog post. Yeah. yeah. But, but for the most part, um, Dune is more concerned with larger, um, ideas like what, what is the long-term future of humanity in space? Cause this is like a far future, uh, world we're dealing with where I think the, the earth no longer even exists. You know, so it's just, uh, the, you know, the far future colonies that sprang from Earth. Uh, you know, he gets into, you know, concepts of like, like what would religion be like in, in the future, in a post-Earth future? Um, you know, what's, what's the rate, how does sexuality figure into it? Uh, you know, gender issues, et cetera. So it's a great adventure story that hits a lot of pretty serious issues concerning the human race. Mm-hmm. Also, the main character overdoses on space drugs. And he rides a giant sandworm to save the universe. Yeah, that's, how could you not love that? That's pretty gnarly. Yeah, you, you gotta you gotta love that. Um, now, did you like the rest of the series? Um, I I love the first book, and the great thing about the first book I should mention too is like the first time I read it, I read it like in uh, high school or junior high, and loved it because it's a great sci-fi adventure, you know. But but then I I actually reread it last year, and um, you know it's it's been a, a decade or so, and I it I'm a different reader now, and it speaks to me on a whole different level. So it's, I mean, I think that's the mark of a great, great book that, that, but, uh, but yeah, the second book, uh, is good, but not as good. And mm-hmm. the, the third book, I was in the fourth book. All right. You know, I, I enjoyed some things about them, but they kind of get progressively, um, dense and progressively dry. And, uh, you know, I'm, this is just my opinion. Uh, a lot of people share this opinion. Some people love everything. Uh, my dentist actually, uh, like loves <laughs> everything Dune related and which is awesome because, can we he can talk about it and I can garble about it uh when I go to see him. But uh but no, I'm not a fan of the later books. Have you seen David Lynch's Dune? Yeah, yeah, that's uh that's a, you haven't seen it yet, have you? No, I uh, have not seen it. I mean it's it's not I, I love it, but not as a as as an accurate portrayal of, of how I see the book in my head. Um though it's got some great costumes in it. Uh you know, Sting runs around in his underwear stabbing people. So uh Again, what's not to love? Um, there's a great John Hodgman quote about the film. Uh, can you read that for us? I must remind you, this was the David Lynch version of Dune, in which everyone was sexy and deformed at the same time. Yeah, so I love I love that quote. That pretty much sums up the film. In other news, they've tried a couple different adaptations of Dune, haven't they? Yeah, there was a, like a sci-fi miniseries uh, version of it that I I think I watched part of it, but it didn't really speak to me. When we were researching this podcast, I read that French director Pierre Morel, director of Taken and From Paris with Love. I've never heard of either of those films. Have you? Uh, t- yeah, I'm familiar with them. I haven't actually seen them, so I can't really say much on, you know, whether I think it's great or not. But, uh, but if he, if he's out there listening and has some casting, uh, ideas, I think that he should get, uh, Eddie Murphy to play the entire, uh, Harkonnen family, <laughs> a la, um, clumps, you know, where it's like different fat suits for different members of the family. So Morel seconded your opinion about uh, Lynch's Dune not being perhaps true to the story. Morel commented to MTV News, like many people, I was not fully satisfied with David Lynch's movie in 1984. I do respect David, and I think his interpretation and vision were interesting, but not what we fans expected. 
Yeah, you know, it was, it, and it's also, it, it's very much a, a film adaptation stuck in its time. And, and speaking of which, Dune was written in, six, in 1965. And, I mean, this is a, so in many ways, this is the book that's really like sci-fi coming out of the 60s. You know, all these fantastic elements that we just talked about. So if you haven't read it, by all means, consider reading Dune. That's our first book. And moving on to our second book, Neuromancer by William Gibson. The sky above the port was the color of television, tuned to a dead channel. And with that, you're striding along with Case, the protagonist. You would call him a protagonist, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And computer cowboy William Gibson's heavyweight contribution to the world of sci-fi back in 1984. Neuromancer won not just a Hugo and a Nebula Award, it also snagged the Philip K. Dick Award, and it heralded the beginning of a new science fiction genre. And that's one of the reasons why we're talking about it today. Yeah, this is the cyberpunk book. Um, everything that, that came after it from, uh, uh, you know, from, from, uh, you know, from any, any cyberpunk book you might read to, uh, to Matrix, you know, his Matrix is just chock full of, uh, Neuromancer, uh, gimmicks, you know. Um, and it's, uh, this is, a this is, you know, a great dystopian work. Most cyberpunk's pretty dystopian. And, and I should define cyberpunk while I'm at it. The idea of cyberpunk is that it, it deals with ubiquitous technology. You know, when when technology, high technology, is available to, at pretty much every level of society, and how that again both changes who we are and illuminates things about who we are. So, like you were saying, Matrix is a good example of cyberpunk that people might be able to relate to. Yeah, I mean, it, Matrix only goes so deep, really, with the cyberpunk stuff, but it's it's definitely something that everybody's going to be able to recognize. And Gibson was the forefather. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's uh, a lot of cyberpunk is, follows the similar elements in your mansion. And then it's kind of noir themed. There's kind of, you know, it's always like some sort of a, you know, sort of a sh- shady, you know, shady characters, sort of rogue characters, you know, on the margins of society, um, um, you know, mysterious benefactors, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so they tend to be, you know, kind of, kind of action adventure mystery kind of deals. So we'd recommend this just because cyberpunk is such an integral part of science fiction today. Yeah, and it and it's you know like I say it's rooted with questions about technology and how it changes you know who we are. Plus, it has some cool beat elements and noir elements. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely he was also inspired by 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 beat um, the beat era. So you can really, especially in this book, you really get a lot of that. Um, and now one one thing to keep in mind is that it is one of the more violent and sexy <laughs> books by William Gibson. So. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of edgy and, and not for, you know, every reader. Um, though each, uh, each William Gibson book after this kind of gets a little tamer and a little more contemplative, uh, and actually a little less sci-fi. Like the last two books that, uh, that Gibson has put out, um, I think they were, um. Pattern Recognition yeah. and Spook Country, right? Yeah. Like those are both set just in the modern world for the most part. It's really interesting. Yeah. And, and Gibson's even, even said that, that he basically doesn't have to write sci-fi anymore because the, the technology has reached the, has reached the point where it's, you know, the future is now. Movies. Um, seems inevitable. Yeah. That they've, they've continued to be talk about a neuromancer film. Um, I, I don't have a lot of faith in it, (laughs) whatever they put together. Um, and inevitably, whatever they put out, people are going to be like, oh, this is just like, this is a Matrix ripoff, man. So <laughs> so let's get to the third book on our list today, which is Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Yeah, 1985. Uh, this book had me at the first line. I can hardly wait to go back to my desk and read it. In the that name was of. the first line? 
podcast research. No. Okay. So the line is, I've watched through his eyes, I've listened through his ears, and I tell you, he's the one. How can you not be intrigued to find out what the heck this book is about? Yeah. It's similar to, to Dune in that respect, which also dealt with the one. And that's the beginning of Ender's Game. So Ender's Game was published in 1985, like we said, by Orson Scott Card, and it was the first in the Ender's Game series. So the plot. Basically, every parent likes to think his or her child is a genius, myself included. But Ender Wiggins actually is. And that's good because humanity is hanging by a shred, as it tends to in, in science fiction. And it's hanging by a shred because it has had these attacks from aliens called buggers. And Ender is the world government's hope. And as such, the government starts ruthlessly training him to save the planet. And the training takes the form of the games referenced in the title. Did I do that justice, Robert? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's really the idea yeah, is that, that aliens attacked. And the only reason that we were able to survive is because we had one guy who was just an amazing leader, like one guy that just stood above everybody else. And then then everybody starts wondering, well, these guys are going to attack again. And who's going to lead us You know, when that happens? So, yeah, they begin this just systematic search that I think you made the comparison to the uh, search, search for the, the next Dalai Lama. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of like that, except more In the world of cool. science fiction. <laughs> yeah. So while I was reading up on Ender's Game, I came across Orson Scott Card's Amazon review. Turns out he was a playwright, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Card writes, in the end, a storyteller tells the tale that he believes in and cares about. And the natural audience consists of those readers who are also willing to believe in and care about that tale. So Card is actually a bit on the defensive here because he's taken a lot of flack, as you're wont to do on Amazon reviews. Um, some for his choppy prose style, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't really get on the, on boat with the, with slamming him for, for his writing. I mean, I, I, I really enjoy his work, but, uh, but yeah, he's come under sharp criticism for a number of things uh, yeah. in recent years. So he had this pretty funny quote, uh, at the end of his lengthy Amazon review. And he says, if America can forgive Bill Clinton, surely there's room for a bit of forgiveness for the imperfections of a few bad writers now and then. Oh, well, see. And I wouldn't necessarily call him a bad writer. And you have to read the whole review to get the context. But I thought that was a funny yeah. <laughs> thing to say. Yeah. Well, this, I mean, uh, certainly it, this won a, you know, Hugo Award and was. And a uh, Nebula Award, you know, yeah. And, uh, actually the sequel, uh, uh, won, I believe, uh, the next year won a Hugo Award as well. But, um, but yeah, it, it deals with some, some pretty weighty issues, you know, how, about our future in the cosmos. How would, how would, might we respond to, uh, some sort of an alien attack? Um, and I know it's a fantastic notion, but when you, when you, when you talk to a cosmologist, like that's, that's really an issue. Like Stephen Hawking talks about this, you know, how, you know, if, if there is alien life out there, how's it going to, how are we going to attempt to communicate with it? How can we possibly, um, you know, deal with it? And if it's anything like us, then God help us, you know, because it's probably going to eradicate us. And, uh, there's also some cool stuff with, uh, with, with, uh, with time, uh, as well. The, um, the uh, the world leader that everyone is afraid, uh, you know, what are we going to do when he's dead? They they go so far as to put him in a spaceship and spin it, send it at high speeds, and the time dilation uh, allows him to live like much longer than he normally would. So he's still there to uh, to teach whoever the chosen one is when they come along. So it's more Lord of the Flies than Harry Potter. Definitely, yeah. Um, and that's the only like the only thing about it that I could you know the only reservation I would have in recommending it to some people might be you've got to be ready for some pretty pretty heart wrenching scenes you know because Ender is you know doesn't Ender just has a rough time but it's a it's a it's a great read and I would definitely recommend this one to uh, to any um, uh, female uh, uh, book readers out there who why is that 
Well, because uh, and this is this is a, there's a large generalization on one hand that uh, that women prefer more character driven books, and certainly this is character. I certainly do. Yeah, and this is and this is very character driven sci fi. Um, you know, cause you really care about Ender and you really want, um, want things to work out for him. Um, and on a, like a personal level, I know, I know a number of, uh, I have a number of female friends who love this book to death. And, and I love this book to death too. If you're a guy out there and you're like, well, I don't want to read a book that girls like or whatever. Um, then, um, I would highly recommend, um, Altered Carbon by Richard K. Morgan, because that is the most violent, um, and, uh, brutal and outrageous sci-fi book that I think you could hope to read. And it has a lot of cool science fiction in it, but it's very much a guy's book. So let's talk about a couple of other great science fiction authors that you may want to check out besides Gibson, Herbert, and uh, Orson Scott Card. There's, of course, Isaac Asimov. Mm -hmm. Hi, Robot. Arthur C. Clarke, whom you already mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then Philip K. Dick, Ray Bradbury. And then there's um, Ursula K. Le Guin, question mark. I, I think that's how you pronounce that. Correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, and there, there's a whole list of other authors. I'm sure we're leaving some off the list, and you're going to be furious about it. And by all means, let us know, uh, because I'm, I'm always interested to hear who um, everyone's favorite authors are and, uh, and who, indeed, I should be reading. And I'm excited to start delving into science fiction more. Yeah, which one do you think you're going to pick up? Ender's Game, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I think you'll dig that one. I wonder if I can get away with reading it on my desk in the name of the podcast. Yeah, totally. You, you should like buy a copy. This is part of my it. job as science editor, after all, don't yeah, you think? Totally. So if you want to learn a little bit more about science fiction, type in science fiction on the search bar on our homepage, and you might get some cool articles like science fiction musicals and how sci-fi doesn't work, or even top five science-born superpowers. Cool. And now we have a little listener mail. Yeah, break up in the, uh, the mailbag. We had two uh, folks write in about the Virtues of Venom podcast we recently did, and one of whom was Mike. He works at a university lab, and he's working with venomous snails that live in the ocean and hunt fish, mollusks, worms, and other snails. And Mike writes that they're doing basic-level research trying to develop drugs for neurological disorders. Oh, very neat. And he points out the cone snail as one of the venomous creatures that we might have been interested in. And he sent us a pretty cool video of a cone snail eating a fish. Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to watch that when I get back to my desk and have lunch. In fact, there's a whole cone snail channel on YouTube in case you were not Whoa. aware. Yeah, so, awesome. so check that out. I'm going to subscribe to that. We also heard from Jack, who wanted to drop us a line from the home of the terrifying venomous platypus. And Jack writes that he grew up in North Queensland, Australia, near the James Cook University, which is uh, one of the leading universities in marine stinger jellyfish research. Jack writes, in regard to the pantyhose comments, in case you guys don't remember, we talked about people wearing pantyhose to protect themselves from being stung by a jellyfish. So Jack writes, in regards to the pantyhose comments, while you joke about it, it is kind of true. In the battle days, surf lifesavers and even members of the public used to wear pantyhose on their legs and cut the gusset out of a second pair to make a kind of pantyhose top. Wait, what's a gusset? I think it's the thing at the top of the pantyhose. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. I'm not 100% sure. Or it might be an Aussie thing. I don't know. It could be an Aussie thing, too. Um, Jack writes, These days, several companies have started producing what are known as stinger suits, essentially a lycra nylon bodysuit. And you can find these if you do a little Google image searching. So if you go to Australia, you just wear this thing all the time. Right. You go to Australia, you get one of these Teletubby wetsuit things. Right at the airport. Just walk yeah, they just zip you right into it when you get off the plane. Well, that's that's really cool, cool to know, yeah. Um Australia, land of venomous creatures. Jack also alerted us to a venomous creature that we didn't mention, the stonefish. 
Really? You should check it out. Maybe Stonefish. you should write a, a, a blog about a stonefish. So thanks for writing us, guys. Uh, you know, feel free to shoot us, uh, shoot us some feedback or some little tidbits, uh, anytime. We love hearing from you. Yeah. So send us an email at science stuff at howstuffworks.com. Oh, and this is new. You can uh, check us out now on Facebook and Twitter. Um, on Twitter, we are lab stuff. And, uh, on Facebook, we're uh, stuff from the science lab. Look us up, you know, become fans of us, follow us. Uh, we're going to be updating those uh, on a regular basis. Thanks for listening, guys. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.